This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Everybody, tonight we're preparing for the giant People's Climate March for Paris. Next week, we might even be reporting to you from Paris. We have some guests who are over there already from the United Nations Climate Summit. But before we start, I'd like to dedicate this show to George Bender and John Davis. George was a farmer fighting off coal seam gas, and John was a Beyond Zero Emissions activist. He died flying back from the Liverpool Plains, where they are fighting off Chinois coal. <clears throat> he was a scientist and produced science books and videos for schools. He took a lift on that fated helicopter to get footage for his next film called Energy Without Carbon. He was the sort of adventurous person that got behind BZE's vision right back in the early days. So in memory of these two valiant people, let's look at what we can do to speed up our fight against the climate havoc which we have created. Our guests in the studio are author David Spratt, psychologist Lynn Bender and on the phone NTEU Victorian Secretary Dr Colin Long. Now, in the United Nations communications package that I received, you three people would be considered as champions of a just transition. That's what they call you, uh, the transition away from fossil fuel and um, a carbon economy. Colin represents the unions and David, I would say, represents the scientists and policy analysts and Lynn is here for the health groups. So I'd like to ask each of you what these climate marches so far from Paris will symbolise, especially as that city is now in a state of emergency and a lot of the citizen groups will not be able to demonstrate in Paris. Now, Colin, could you just tell me your answer to that question first? That's a great question. Uh, well, for us, I think it represents um, unions and all people standing together and saying we're tired of the failure of government and others to really take proper action on climate change and we're standing up to say uh, that we want real action and, when, and the people are calling for real action. That's why I think the idea of a people's climate march is so important. We're the ones calling for real action, real change. We're sick of government stuffing us around and um, not doing the right thing and we'll take action to our, into our own hands if necessary and um, unions feel very strongly about that. We want to have, uh, as you said, a just transition. We want real um, consideration of how we can ensure that workers who are engaged in currently mm. fossil fuel intensive industries are given 
the chance to transition into other industries and that we believe that real jobs growth is actually possible if we move to a sustainable economy. Okay. Well, we'll talk a little bit that uh, more at length a bit later. Now, David, what's your response to that? What do the climate marches so far away from Paris, what do they symbolise? Well, I think what happened in Paris a week ago uh, makes our marches here even more important than ever and the Melbourne Climate March will be the first in the world. Uh, so what we do here is really a story that will, will fly around the world. And so I think that's important that we have a particular responsible here to make it really big and, and bold and strong. Um, we're all in this. Uh, often the climate and environment things are seen as left of, left of centre things. It's just the greenies. I think with the number of, of partners and supporters of this march across a really large number of health groups, great work by, by the unions, the ACTU, the Trades Hall, uh, church organisations, 50 or 60 of the small climate energy uh, community groups in Victoria, they're going to see a really diverse, really strong uh, statement from parts of society that... that may not always have been this conversation so I think that's fantastic. Thank you Lynn, what about you? Well I agree completely with what Colin and David have said but on a personal level this is a, everyone's way of dealing with that sense of impotence and fear about what is happening to the climate and, and many people feel what can I do it's beyond me, we're stuck with this and they want to just try and forget it but this is an action they can take. They can find solidarity and comfort in numbers. And I think something that shows a huge number of people are feeling about strongly about wanting action can encourage people to take that path. So on a personal level, individual mental health level, I think taking action when there's something that's really causing you enormous alarm and concern is mentally healthy. But secondly, it, it's also a signal to politicians that hey the people want this and if politicians are quite sensitive to votes unfortunately that can bring out about the wrong sort of results but we really want them to know that we want them to do something genuine about climate and okay. they're the ones lagging behind mm. okay all right now we're going to talk to colin a bit more in detail and then i'll come back to david and then a bit later um colin look i know the trade unions are all going to gather at trades hall at four o'clock on friday uh, by the way listeners the big rally is at the State Library of Victoria at 5.30 <coughs> next Friday, 27th of November. But the trade unions are going to meet before. Can you tell us some of the names of the trade unions and how climate change will affect their working conditions? Sure. Uh, well, our union, National Tertiary Education Union, we've taken a leading role in this, um, and that's because, well, we believe that Climate change is you know, the most important issue facing the world at the moment. Uh, but also we have a substantial number of members who are actually researchers in climate change and even uh, you know, world leaders in climate change. So we understand the science very, um, very well and we believe it's our role as a union to represent our members, including in their um, intellectual and professional pursuits. There's the ETU, the Electrical Trades Union, which... Uh, 
are a good supporter and will be coming along. I think they understand that there's real growth in renewable energy and for them there's real growth in their members, for, uh, in jobs, in renewable energy for them. They've, their experience in the coal-fired power industry since privatisation has been that it's just been a slow decline. Well, initially a very steep decline in jobs and then a slow decline in jobs and the only real jobs growth is in uh, renewables uh, and energy efficiency and things like that. There's the other education unions, the Australian Education Union and the Independent Education Union. I think they get a sense of how important it is as educators to uh, understand the science and to inform people about in the community about the science. But they also, they're dealing with children from day to day, so they, they know that... Uh, climate change is about their futures. It's about all our futures, to be honest. I mean, we know that climate change is happening now, but the ones who are going to suffer the most are our children. So they understand all of that. There's the Manufacturing Workers Union, the AMWEU. They, um, they know that there are jobs to be had in new technologies and new industries to deal with climate change. Um, there's the Public Sector Union uh, and Okay. Many others too. I yeah, we'll, them all. we'll see them all on Friday. But look, last week I'd just like to tell you a little bit about myself. I was in Sydney and we had a sudden heat wave the day before and then on Friday just went up to 41 degrees and then 42 yeah. degrees and over one hour I was walking up Pitt Street from you know Central Railway just up to the top of Pitt Street and in that hour it climbed 10 degrees in the hour well I heard about this later but I could feel it too and I saw an old woman on a walking frame she could hardly walk and um, I found a library and went inside and sat in the cool of the library for that time but then I read a bit about uh, apparently 40 uh, climate council have come out with 41 percent of Australian workers um, can only operate in temperatures below 35 degrees after that they won't be able to work outside or you know with any excessive energy so um, and apparently even office workers report heat stress affects their productivity so I think this is a really an in union issue for every single worker is that how it's being told to workers are they getting this message that it's affecting all of them I think so increasingly it's certainly a, a, it is an OHS issue there's no doubt about it if there is increasing numbers of ultra uh, very hot days then that will uh, affect a large number of uh, workers, especially those working outside in the construction industry and so on, but it will affect other workers. It will have an effect on the cost of running a business, to be frank, because you know your your air conditioning costs will go up for commercial buildings and so on, unless you have solar power. But so it's a it's an issue across the whole sector. The other area, the whole economy. The other area of unions that I should mention are the emergency service. Oh workers, yes, so yeah. Fireys and uh, ambulance workers as well, and that they're already starting to see themselves as the first responders to climate change. And I, this is very clear. I was in New York um, earlier in the year speaking with unions about climate change there and the emergency service unions in New York very clearly see themselves as already thoroughly engaged as first responders to climate catastrophe because of the enormous you know, Hurricane Sandy and the other storms yeah. that they've experienced yeah. there. I heard one of them say at a rally, um, you never find a climate denier at the end of a, a fire hose. <laughs> but listen, one of the crunch issues from the uh, United Nations climate pack that they've sent me, the communications pack, one of what they call crunch issues is about how to phase out fossil fuels. But I think a lot of workers are sort of 
you know, holding back against this. And I've been to, you know, public hearings where the Rio Tinto workers, they all lined up and one after the other gave their testimony about how good an employer Rio Tinto was and how they wanted the mine to go on and their lifestyle was so nice in that little town. And it was all just about how good life was for them. And I thought, well, they're earning big salaries, you know, driving trucks for over $100,000 a year. I didn't feel too sympathetic for them, but, but on the other hand, I can see that they perhaps are unskilled and they can't do anything else and so something has to happen and they were locked into protecting Rio Tinto of all things um, just to keep their jobs but a retired miner did speak to me by the way those people weren't allowed to speak to the media but the retired miner said to me oh yes it's called the golden handcuffs (laughs) (laughs) and um, but um, Bill uh, Shorten and Malcolm Turnbull both say that we'll be mining coal well into the future what do you say to workers like that? Oh, look, I, I think we need to have a great deal of... Actually, I think we need to have a great deal of understanding and sympathy for those those workers, many of them. And I, I, I will say that, you know, the, the CFMEU is, is a very good union and it has a lot of concerns around um, the future of coal and we, we're trying to be sympathetic and understanding about it because in, in many... Uh, fossil fuel reliant communities there aren't obvious large numbers of obvious alternative job opportunities even in the Latrobe Valley the Valley community has been promised all sorts of restructuring and transition for decades really oh, I know. and it's ne- and nothing ever happens and so it's very frustrating for for the workers there many of them would be more than happy to get out of coal-fired power or digging uh, coal out of the ground they'd be more than happy but there's no no one is providing real opportunities for other jobs so that is what is vitally important i think that we all talk about now the thing is there are other opportunities and there are other choices and there are other uh, jobs that we could um, get workers into there are no doubt about that and companies like Rio Tinto you know they're very good at manipulating people and scaring people they have a lot of money that they put into that sort of thing they're no friend of the worker never have been uh, and when it when push comes to shove down in the Latrobe Valley I think everyone in the Latrobe Valley knows that eventually some of those power stations are going to close and uh, if they're not closed for climate change reasons they'll just be closed because the company's uh, can't make enough money out of them anymore and if that happens they just they won't care about the future of the workers it's only really the climate the climate activists and the environment movement that is saying let's have a uh, a real plan about how we close and transition these uh, the, the workers down there to give them real jobs because the companies don't care what happens to them after they they close yes well I went to the launch of the greens new policy at least they seem to be firming up around this thing of not leaving anyone behind in the transition. They want gung-ho to renewable energies, but don't leave anyone behind. And they, on their policy platform, want to have $1 billion set aside for a clean energy transition fund. Mm. Now, how could this be spent to help coal workers and coal-affected communities sort of reinvent themselves? there's There's so many ways that transition could be facilitated by that sort of money or by whatever sort of process. I mean, the main thing is that the the Australian government has to get out of the way of the development of a renewable energy industry. I mean, under the Abbott government in particular, but we ha- unfortunately we haven't really seen any changes under Turnbull. The, the federal government...
federal government has been actively standing in the way of the creation of new jobs and a new industry sector. Now, that is remarkable for any Australian government ever in the history of the of the country, really, to say actively say we are trying to create, we are trying to stop the creation of new jobs in new industries, and they got they've got away with it up to now. So they've got to stop getting in, at the very least, got to stop getting in the way of the creation of new jobs and, cre- and new industries. Uh, even better, they should be supporting the creation of those new jobs uh, and new industries. We need proper transition plans for communities like the Latrobe Valley. There needs to, and that, they need to involve the community first and foremost, not about the the um, the companies. They'll have to involve the companies in some way, but they need to ask the communities, what do you want your economic future of your community to look like? And there are many opportunities for renewable energy, cooperatives, different manufacturing uh, enterprises, uh, the, the scaling up and development of sustainable ag- agriculture in that region and so on. So there's so yep. many opportunities, and we just have to be have governments prepared to say, right, we're going to do this sort of thing, we're going to do this planning, we're going to invest in these industries or we're going to enable others to invest in them and we're not going to stand in the way. Okay, well, thank you very much, Colin. We're talking to Dr Colin Long from the NTEU. Now, Colin, you said you'd be able to stay on the line. I hope we can keep you there. And I've got a few more questions to ask you about the sort of international, you know, your experience in the Asia-Pacific and the sort of international outreach that we need to do as well. Um, But we're now going to move to our next speaker which is Lynn Bender. She's a psychologist from a group called Psychologists for Safe Climate and her recent article caught my eye. It was called Turnbull Hunt and Bishop Piling on the Porkies in Paris. So Lynn, what made you write that article? Well, in fact... They've gone to Paris with exactly the same policies with a few minor variations that Tony Abbott had towards the environment. The difference is they're saying things like, we're open and flexible to the possibility of increased targets. Now, that's very um, long-winded way to say maybe. And uh, if ever you've asked a man or a woman, but as a woman, if they will do something you know they don't really want to do and you really want them to do it and they say maybe, it's not very convincing. And so uh, the, the direct action plan, for example, has just been pilloried by Turnbull himself in 2009 when he declared it was a fig leaf and a farce and the kind of policy you have when you don't really want to do anything about climate change which came out of uh, Tony Abbott's uh, absolute declaration that climate change is crap, which he modified slightly when it started to look that he was an outlier. (laughs) But he always advocated we protect coal first. And in fact, that seems to be what's happening. Coal mines are being approved. There's um, uh, risks of change to the legislation so that um, people can't object to coal mines through legal means, which is pretty outrageous. Um, the uh, Australia went joined with South Korea to try and uh, block uh, the OECD initiative to um, stop lending for dirty coal to developing countries and the corollary of that is to help them with other forms of energy. Um, they got it watered down. They came away as heroes who were part of this initiative but they were part of the attempt to, to reduce it and they put loopholes in. Mm. So um, I think we can say that um, 
Malcolm Turnbull says it in a nicer way, but really he's still saying nope, nope, nope. Well, Lynn, look, you're a psychologist, so I'm just going to ask you for your professional help here. I know that I am deluded. I want to believe that Turnbull will make us proud in Paris. Mm. He looks nice, you know, and I can just see him talking to Obama. I just wish the words coming out of his mouth would be sort of a bit more radical than we're getting reported, but maybe there's been something lost in transmission. I'm still, you know, deluded. Everyone tells me he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, but I want to hug that sheep so badly. How can I protect myself? Well, we do want to believe. We want to believe in a saviour, I guess. And after Tony Abbott, who was quite a brutal patriarch, we've got this nice new man at the head of the table. He's so fond of that image. So sitting at this table where everything is on the table is this nicer man that we can take out in public who doesn't embarrass us quite so much. Although he did tell Obama to read the Northern Territory newspaper rather than New York Times. Um, So I think that our desire to feel safe is very strong. We've just emerged abused from the abuser, Tony Abbott, who was very blatantly abusive. We know climate change is happening. Malcolm Turnbull has always said he believed in climate. He's been billed as a great, having a lot of intelligence, that he fought and lost his leadership on the basis of climate change. So we're probably still suffering from the shock that he's actually not doing anything, that he's now in the chair at the head of the table And he's still taking the same menu with him that Abbott advocated. But we so want to feel safe. We want to believe all can be sort of fixed now. We can leave it in his hands. And when I was door knocking for the climate march, I actually encountered someone um, who who said um, that she now felt that uh, climate change would be not a problem because Malcolm was now at the head. Mm. And people will vote him in too Mm. later on. But listen, I was listening to Radio Ecoshock on um, 3CR Sunday morning at 6am, which is a brilliant program, I think. And Mm. a person interviewed there was called David Wasdell, scientist, and he said global leaders, um, he said the leaders at Paris are not the global leaders we need. They are national leaders, just players on the global stage of delusion. What do you think about that? Full of sound and fury and signifying nothing, as Shakespeare would say. Um, They are players and politics, I have been told, especially by conservatives, is the art of negotiation and deal-making. And they are still patting themselves on the back for making deals that are actually hopeless, that would get us beyond two degrees. Two degrees is too hot. We're already at one degrees degree. So um, they see politics as seen as the art of getting a compromise, getting a deal, um, appeasing backers, and I think there is a lot of that going on. But within that, uh, there must be some at the table who have some sense of ethics and concern for the future. And I think once people realise, well, actually it's all our fate in this, that no one's going to get off scot-free from this, that our children and grandchildren are in peril, there must be some consciousness. And I think I'm detecting a bit of that. So I'm a little more optimistic. Um, I think someone like Obama, despite all his flaws in some areas, is quite sincere very sincere about his concern for the planet. I think um, 
more and more politicians are concerned. The Green Movement is an international movement. So I think it's hopeful, but it's certainly not a lay-down misere. Okay. Well... I think in Australia, politicians all say they're cutting emissions, but emissions are going up. Mm. And David Spratt will tell us a bit more in detail about that later. Could you tell us about um, that fellow Mark Jacquard in your article? He had three questions that we can, like bullshit detectors, we can tell if a a politician is lying to us. Yes, it's an excellent summary. You can get it on YouTube. Mark Jacquard has been an energy advisor uh, over many years. He's an ec- economist. Um, he was on the IPCC panel. Um, now, his, his uh, checklist is, first of all, how do you tell if a politician's lying about climate change policy? First of all, if the politician's got targets but no credible policy to get to those targets, he's lying. Secondly, if a politician has targets, a policy but no forceful way to put those uh, targets, to advocate for those targets. For example, with direct action, polluters just get off scot-free if they pollute. They're giving money to not pollute. Please, pretty please, we believe in incentives, says um, said Abbott. Uh, thirdly, they may have um, good targets. They may have good policy, they may even have strong policy, but there are loopholes. Now, uh, the loopholes can be in the form of um, carbon offsets, so-called, and um, if they don't have a price and and an ongoing price on carbon and targets, things like that, and there are too many loopholes, which which has been really the policy um, that Malcolm Turnbull was negotiating had lots of loopholes and direct action has lots of loopholes it's it's a farce as Malcolm Turnbull himself said so that's how we know if they're lying okay well I'll try and apply Mark Jacquard now to my deluded way of thinking but what about the Green Bank I was hopeful about that Abbott sneered at it he called it Bob Brown's bank but now oh. Julie Bishop has negotiated for us to be the co-chair I want to be proud of Australia I want us to be co-chair I love that Green Bank, it sounds good. How can we make sure they make this climate finance really buy climate resilience and a decrease in emissions? Well, their record in what they've done with foreign aid should make us worry because I think they, they realise it's better to be inside the tent pissing out, basically. So they, they know that they get a lot of kudos and honour and I, would, I have yet to believe that their intent is not to slow down um, the, 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 the aims of that uh, Green Bank because I think still what is operating is the belief that Australia rests on coal, that we must continue the coal industry so that that's what's guiding them and I think to be on the Green Bank I mean put vampires in charge of the blood bank that's how I feel about it mm. and I don't trust the intent is about maximising our climate change action. I think it's to dilute it, as they did with the OECD. Okay. Well, look, back to Paris. I know, listen, listeners, we're talking about the road to Paris and some of the aspects of it, and we're just talking to Lynn Bender, a psychologist. Lynn, I noticed how the terrible events in Paris eclipsed similar horror in Beirut and other cities. And one Mm. of my French friends actually said, um, oh, well, in other cities they put up with this all the time, you know, this kind of level of fear. 
they also eclipsed the high-profile climate conference that we've been talking about Paris for months, and that seemed to go out of the news for quite a few days. So how can journalists keep the sort of quiet horror of climate disruption that's already in the pipeline? It is horrific what is in the pipeline coming along. How can they keep it sufficiently front of mind so that we can fight it? Well, I think they have to keep showing that it deserves front page. I mean, partly Paris captured us because you couldn't turn on the radio. Every program, even on the ABC, had the Paris angle. You know, so um, I heard listeners ringing in about their trauma at Paris, and it was about what are they going to tell their children? Well, we're going to tell them it's over there that um, the terrorism's over there, which which is where we like to keep it, just as we like to keep our bombing over there. So I think while people have thought climate change is over there, oh, it's the poorer countries, um, they perhaps can ignore it because it's very frightening. So I do think the press, as The Guardian decided, uh, the editor as he was leaving, uh, did a mea culpa about I haven't paid enough attention to climate change. I'm going to do it now in my last six weeks. I think we have to keep it on the front page. The way we kept Paris on the front page, we found every, I'm Paris, the terror. We found every angle. We interviewed every French person we could find. Um, and uh, every program had an, had an angle. So I think climate change is pervasive. It's about all of our ways of life. It has implications for health. It has implications for our future. It has implications for our decisions. It has implications for where we might live, how we might prepare, what we might tell our children. All of those things are extremely important. And if we don't do that, you know, in my understanding, it's as though we're telling a cancer patient not to worry. Um, Malcolm's just going to um, do some research and find a cure. You just go ahead and keep doing what you're doing. In fact, um, the, the best prognosis for someone is if they know where they stand, they may not be able to um, regain their health, but they may have a meaningful time while they're there. They may make it better for others. They may reduce the damage. Mm. They may save other lives because other people will know. And that's our model for climate change action. We really have to face it and we have to be a bit scared because it is frightening. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Lynn. Uh, Can I just just add to that? Is that you, Colin? Yes. Hi. Thank you. That's uh, Dr. Colin Long talking to us by phone. Speak up. Yeah, just wanted to add to that that um, it, what angers me, uh, well, there's an awful lot angers me about the current um, terrorist, round of terrorist attacks. I mean, there's, there's so many things mm. that make one ang- angry, but the fact that they are making it difficult to uh, coordinate global action on what is, anyway, a much bigger threat than terrorism despite the threat the yes. real and present threat that the terrorism is no doubt mm. but the, the greater large-scale threat to the world is from climate change and if we think that um, we're struggling with some of the political response to this to problems in the middle east at the moment and this is what we're getting now imagine what we're going to get when climate change really hits yeah. and starts to break down society exactly. all over the world. And yeah. We're just not prepared for that. And we've seen it in Libya, uh, in um, Syria. That there is plenty of evidence to show the role of climate change and drought, for instance, mm. in 
the breakdown in social uh, control and in civility in in uh, Syria itself and the, the drought caused large numbers of people to migrate to the cities. It caused a massive increase in food prices over in the years leading up to the breakdown of civil order. All of the, so climate change is already contributing to social breakdown, uh, and that sort of message needs to be get got out there as well. That's right. We need to get real ourselves so that we prepare ourselves for, as you say, much bigger eventualities. Okay, David Spratt's with us. And look, David Spratt's on I admire. He's been a catalyst for getting real on climate for a decade. Me, with my delusions, I always find them quite quickly dispelled when I go to one of his talks. And since Climate Code Red, he has published reports and given hundreds of talks on bright siding and why it's a bad strategy to always tell the positive story permafrost bubbling our way to the apocalypse and he explains why there's no carbon budget left really and why two degrees is far too high we shouldn't be even contemplating that so welcome david thanks for the cheery intro (laughs) well tell us about now about the diversity of groups mobilizing around the paris climate conference well look the people's climate march in melbourne is coming friday at 5 30 at the state library is really in in part an attempt by the climate movement to build more strength more power Um, and in that i think it's done well because we've got a whole lot of people signed up who we haven't seen before uh, who haven't been active as active before. Um, one of the really exciting things is that faith groups have really come on board and just yesterday eight faith umbrella groups in Victoria, so this is not individual churches but umbrella bodies such as the uh, the Council of Churches the Jewish Community Council, the Islamic Society the umbrella bodies for Hindus for Buddhists and so on, all signed on to a statement together and this is unprecedented in Victoria and I'll just read a couple of sentences because I, th- I think it really shows what's how it's changing and and their commitment and they say in this statement we stand together in our moral obligation to care for sacred earth the most vulnerable people and all human life is a gift entrusted to our common care as we are confronted by the growing impacts of climate change in all corners of the world more extreme weather events disrupt food production and water security which what Colin was just talking about in mm. relationship to Syria exacerbate hunger cause economic insecurity and force displacement Syria again we share a common concern for nature and for global social justice and are deeply concerned that climate change is a threat to precious human life and to the survival of humanity unless strong and urgent action is is taken to address the causes. And that's just one of the sectors that's come on board. So I think just let's give a sense that this is not the same old suspects of just a few Greeny and climate groups. We've got unions, no. we've got these, we've got health workers, we've got bike riders riding yeah. in from Moreland and from Ceres. It's really going to be a very diverse and exciting event. And we've always been talking about building the movement and um, George Marshall came out here, I think, with the psychologist for Safe Climate and he talked about talking to diverse people and how each little community has its own leaders who can talk to them in their own language. And so people who are coming from the Sikh community, for example, might have a sort of a, a Sikh sort of world view that their leaders can appeal to Look, when they're I, talking I about can't, I can't get Catholic high school populations to come to the march, mm. but 
No, the Pope can. <laughs> but, the, but the Pope and Catholic Earth Care and this statement and having a Catholic Cardinal visiting yep. from Honduras speak at the March can. And we know that, that, that messages work better when you trust and are familiar with the people who are, who are giving you those messages. And that's why this diversity in organisation is important. Well, David, can I just ask you, how can it be that all these groups that probably have huge amounts of things in conflict between themselves and within their groups, you know, ideological differences, they can all just write this statement that you've read out and, and agree on something such as, quote, a just transition to clean energy. How can they all be suddenly all on behalf of clean energy? Look, the ideological schisms between various places <laughs> would require several, be- yeah. <laughs> several PhDs and many of Colin's colleagues to uh, unravel, but there is common cause. Uh, they were having a discussion about what the their interfaith banner should say and the words care for sacred earth was something they could all sign off on now the word care is really prominent in the encyclical in the pope's encyclical but care for sacred earth was something that all of them said we agree with this so i mean all these processes of bringing people together despite their differences is about finding common cause com- common language and common action and i hope that's what we'll do on friday so consider yourself very royally invited listener from faith group union group uh, green groups you don't have to be from any one of those you can just be a citizen who's been thinking about this a lot and you'll find as lynn said some comfort in joining together with i think a very impressive big rally it'll be one of those big ones can i just give one very simple example so there's a whole lot of feeding events before the main rally okay bike riders coming from moreland um from the mechanics at 4 30 um coming from series at 4 45 the unions as colin said are marching down from trades hall and the faith groups are having a little thing called a farewell to coal uh, with a coffin and a choir and, <laughs> and, and all sorts of little things uh, around the corner from the main march at Wesley uh, Church at 148 Lonsdale Street from 5 o'clock on Friday and they will all gather there and various interfaith speakers will go through a set of words to say some things about coal but our Pacific leaders have been sh- saying so uh, all those all those leading events are on the website mm. at um, uh, peoplesclimate.com.au forward slash Melbourne and you'll see all these leading events listed if you want to join whatever is appropriate for you. <laughs> you seem to be getting quite excited about it. Look, for a veteran person of many progressive movements, and I know Lynn is too, how do you think the sheer numbers of this big march here and worldwide, and knowing that they're part of something that is worldwide, will change the people who attend it just can't end with this one rally. It has to tran- have some effect on those people to motivate them, activate them, let's say. Look, I think when people go to really big events, there is a certain spirit or power that they mm-hmm. often is part of that event and you feel special there's all these other people there who agree with you it's exciting there's a real diversity in messages and people and you being part of something big and knowing you're strong in numbers is is one of the most empowering things you can do and one of the most disempowering things you can do as lynn will tell you is to sit alone at home and do social media for five hours a night i mean we live in a world of, of, of breaking down of collectivities of individualism and selfies and so on so this, this this may be, you know, the anti-selfie rally where we don't take photos of ourselves, but we take photos of really large groups of people making common cause. Well, so, Lynn, can I ask you, in terms of, you know, we have George Brandis putting again in front of Parliament the thing that calls, uh, uh, who tells people who take their 
very legitimate cause to not have a coal mine in their backyard to court, uh, sort of vigilante litigation, like a huge oxymoron, um, green terrorists and so on. People mm. are being vilified. There's a certain little closet group, I hope it's only a small group within the conservative ranks, who really hate mm. what we're doing. They think this is, you know, some communist plot that is going to ruin all the projects of capitalism. Well, this rally included. Well, they're protecting what they perceive to be their interests. But um, James Hansen, who's, I would call, quite a conservative scientist, got arrested over the tar sands. So did Mark Jackard, who um, doesn't like me calling him conservative. I checked that I'd got his uh, checklist right, which I had, but he didn't like conservative, so I had to take it out. Um, but they're people who have been part of the establishment, if you like, that they haven't gone against the flow. They're not, you know, just mm. object, objecting people for objecting sake. Um, so has Bill McKibben um, become a protester and activist. And using the law is totally appropriate. The law's there to safeguard the community and people's rights and the world, in fact. So to rail against the use of the law is absurd. Um, I think it's quite uh, worrying because it's a tendency towards... Um, um, now, can I say this? Uh, this is me. This is not 3CR. It's a tendency towards fascism when you take control <laughs> of the state. I'm sure that's and, been said on this station before now. <laughs> and um, you make laws about things that, that get in the way of your power. Uh, and so I would think it's quite outrageous. I don't think... I think anyone should take it as a great honour to be called an echo, uh, to be in, to find George Brandis uh, criticising them for taking action. I think it's responsible. Uh, that's why I think we all should go to this march because we're saying we're going to stand up and be counted. We're telling our children why we're doing it. I'm telling people no appointments this Friday because I'm going to the march. Good on you. Okay, look, David, I want to come back now to the hard stuff about Paris. These pledges that the nations have all put on the table, they will lead to a three-degree-plus warming. You know, Mark Wasdell calculates they lead to about seven degrees of warming. I don't want to quibble about how much warming. It's all far too much. So we need some rigorous thinking. And can you give me, like, short answers, David, on this? Just yes or not even yes or no, but just quick answers, would you mind? Because I know you know this, like, very, very well. Can you just say, do we have enough scientific information for an emergency response? Yes. Do we need consensus among the nations to generate that response? If you wait for consensus, you may wait a long time. What you need is leadership from countries and people who count. What would an emergency response look like if there is no carbon budget left? Um, it would mean planning a really rapid transition. I think the first thing is it, you just cannot leave it to the market. Um, uh, John Schellenhu, who's head of the Potsdam Institute in Germany and the advisor of the EU and, and Angela Merkel, the leading climate scientist advocate in Europe, says what we need is, and these are wonderful words, a controlled implosion of the fossil fuel industry and that is something that's not going to happen by accident by the market it has to be planned and organised and as Collins talked about we have to think about the Labor Party and the investment funds and the new industries and have a way of doing that and it, it's not difficult it's saying no new fossil fuel industry to start with stop the subsidies the up to $10 billion a year 
Australia is putting into fossil fuels, plan this controlled implosion and adjust transition and new jobs in different industries, build the new with that money we've liberated and then sort out the problems that remain after that. I mean, these are concrete things that can be done if government intervenes and plans because all rapid changes in society have been brought about by conscious collective social action, whether it be the Marshall Plan or the Japanese or Chinese transitions. These require collective social plan and will. Okay. How can we go back below the one degree of warming that we've caused so far, if not beyond zero? We have to stop emitting fossil fuels and then we have to get rid of the extra stuff we put up there. Now, we know there's some ways to do that that are limited in extent. We know that reforestation will draw it down. We know over long periods of time the ocean will take it down. We have to find the ways to get really large amounts of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And we don't know them all now. Um, terrible analogy, when they set out to build the atom bomb, they had no idea how to build one. But if you do the work, you'll find the answers. And this is one of those things where, and Sheldon Huber says, research, 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 as well as, as stopping fossil fuels. And if you do enough of this work, we will get the answers. Okay. Thinking about the Indonesian peat fires and the melting permafrost, which is mm. a subject I, I never knew about permafrost until I read Climate Code Red, and that was the thing that I really took from your book. Permafrost, my gosh, when that starts melting and the methane comes out, we're really game over. So thinking about that, we've just seen it in Indonesia. Why are these climate changes not up for discussion at Paris? Because the international political policy-making process is consciously delusional. It is not setting out to solve the problem. It does not start by recognising the science as it really is, not recognising the problem as it really is. You cannot produce an answer without elaborating the question honestly and they are not elaborating the question they talk about carbon budgets being left when the, when there's none they talk about two degrees as being a reasonable target when james hansen says it's a quote unquote a recipe for disaster so if you're not honest about the problem you'll never get the answer and that's what policymakers are doing because they do not want to rock the boat garno and stern and all these people have said we should do these things but it'd be too disruptive to the market so let's do less and is this notion that we cannot do anything that's economic disruptive that stops the policy making process from, from having an honest grip with reality as opposed to Sheldon Hooper who says we need a controlled implosion that has a particular economic resonance it means sorry it's not win-win these industries simply have to go and we've seen that renewable energy has been incredibly economic disruptive I mean in Germany the large electricity companies have no share market value anymore the six large companies because they've been disrupted by this new technology so we have to accept there'll be disruption and radical change and that's what they can't or won't do in Paris right Colin do you have anything to put in there Yes, very. I agree with everything that's been said. Uh, I think a very uh, helpful analogy is to, is to suggest that uh, you know in in the nineteen thirties there were um, British arms manufacturers selling weaponry to the to Germany, and it would be like saying after the invasion of Poland by the Nazis that the British government would say to the um, British arms manufacturers, oh, well, we, we won't interfere with your trade in weaponry to, 
to Germany. We don't want to interfere in the market for that. We should uh, just see how the market lets it determine whether you should sell weaponry to the Germans or not. I mean, we just didn't do that. We just said, stop it. You're not doing it anymore. And we, the sort of uh, issue, the sort of uh, scale of problem we're facing is something that requires something akin to a wartime mobilisation and, and the sort of planning that took place to enable the Allies to defeat the Nazis in the Second World War. You don't leave it up to the market to just see, oh, it might go here, it might go there. And that is the fundamental problem. I think Naomi Klein discusses this very well in her, in um, oh, This Changes Everything, when she says, unfortunately, the, the real uh, impact of uh, climate change has started to become obvious to everyone over the last 30 years, precisely at the same time as neoliberalism took over the global political economy. And we can't deal with climate change while governments are under the thrall of neoliberalism and, do, and will let the market make all determinations. Uh, and that's why I actually go back to something... Um, that Lynn said a little earlier, which I slightly disagree with, which is I don't think politicians are often... They're, they're not actually lying about things. They're actually... Uh, they just will refuse, categorically refuse, to do anything that uh, interferes in the operation of the market. Mm. Uh, and that's certainly the case in Australia, and that's why, in the end, people will be disappointed by Turnbull, because Turnbull is a market fundamentalist. Abbott was a market fundamentalist. They'll get around to defending the market in, from different ways, uh, where Abbott was much more disagreeable and aggressive. Turnbull is just a smooth-talking uh, market fundamentalist, but there's in the end, they will both defend the market over the climate. And that's the fundamental problem that we have to uh, deal with at a, at a, a global level. Yeah, look, I think, I, sorry, I think that's exactly right. And the political process is always one of compromise. Yeah. It's always, there's A or there's B, so we'll find a bit of space in the middle. It's never saying A is absolutely necessary. And, I mean, many years, years ago I said, it's if these politicians think that you can negotiate with the laws of physics and chemistry. And you can't. This is the one thing when you the, the, you cannot negotiate with them. They'll just roll over you with heat waves and record or El Ninos, and this year being the hottest year on record. And there's no negotiating with 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 those laws of physics and chemistry. And that's that's the political disjuncture that you have in Paris. I guess um, I agree with everything you're both saying, but I do think they're lying, Colin. I think they're lying by pretending that they're. They're not putting the climate last, which yeah, is sure. what they're doing. And they're going there with so-called climate policies that are going to do really well. And, you know, the direct action auction was a stunning success. Yeah. I call that a lie. Yeah, sure. And um, that they, you know, their concern in negotiating um, at the OECD is climate. No, it's coal. It's business. It's yeah. their, their backside, so to speak. Now... I call that a lie, and yes. I guess the big lie is that you can have an economy without an earth. Yes. <laughs> and yes. um, the big, it sort of reminds me of, of a guy who's had a very bad heart attack. He's being wheeled into hospital. He says, I can't go to hospital. I have to go to a meeting. It's a very important meeting at the office. And, you know, of course, he's going to be dead if he doesn't go and have... Um, some treatment. So there is no there is no economy without a without our um, without climate action. There is a better economy if we 
protect the planet as best we can. That's yeah. the truth. Okay, well, I have one last question. We're nearly out of time, and I think David has to uh, leave soon. Um, but the, the next, I think we're talking about a global issue. We're talking about lack of really global leadership because all those leaders are national leaders. But there, there's a, a huge discrepancy between the poorer countries who are suffering the, you know, Typhoon Haiyan, the great floods and heat waves in Pakistan, and we, we, any one of us in this room could name the terrible things that are happening. I, I was in Timor earlier this year, and I met the minister, and he said he was going to Paris just to claim loss and damage, you know, and the, the, this green fund will have to be paying for loss and damage to people who, and certainly to Pacific Islands. Now, Colin, I know you have some expertise. You're, in fact, a historian of the Asia-Pacific, so could you tell us just something from your experience to bring it to life that what it's like in those countries and how we can back them up in their arguing position at Paris but also how we can then as Naomi Klein says have a Marshall Plan for the Earth where we make a massive transfer of expertise like your trade union expertise and uh, and financing to the poorer countries yeah that's a massive a massive question you know I've been doing quite a bit of work around uh Garment workers' rights in Bangladesh. So, you know, we're trying to defend the org- uh, to encourage the organisation of garment workers in Bangladeshi factories, and that's a that's a tough job. I mean, garment workers and the unions uh, members get killed over there if they try and get organised. It's that bad. Mm. But you know, it also occurs to me that we could be achieving all sorts of great things for Bangladeshi garment workers, but it is one of the most vulnerable countries in the world to climate change and sea level rise, and they could lose it all just from the impact of climate change. So they really need, you know, that has they, they, those struggles need to either be in parallel or the climate change one almost needs to be um, more important in some ways. So uh, one of the problems, of course, with uh, the Pacific and with Asia is, that, you know, the the malign influence or legacy of colonialism. Um, the uh, so there's not a great deal of trust in the West in many ways, and you know it's justified. Uh, we're still trying to extract as much as we can out of um, the, the Asia Pacific. Uh, when I say we, most of the rest of the developed uh, developed world. And then we have the other added problem of the the growth of China and the very dirty growth of China. That there is. You know, talk about how they're trying to introduce more renewable energy and cut back on coal, but it's still a long way to go. And um, but then, on the on the other hand, China and other poor countries do have a claim to try and improve the 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 standards, the living standards of their populations. And fundamentally, I think what it comes down to: yes, we need to transfer wealth, we need to transfer expertise. Although you'll be surprised at the uh, expertise that is available in many developing countries already. But fundamentally, what we need to do in the rich world is say we have too much; we can't continue to grow our economies and pollute in the ways we're doing because some of these poorer countries need to grow their economies, and they will they will pump out some CO2 in the process of that to try and improve the living conditions for their people. But we, we can't continue to do that in the rich West. In fact, we have to decelerate very rapidly. 
Well, that's a nice word, decelerate. I would like to put us all on carbon rations. but <laughs> I'd, I'd like a, a controlled implosion. <laughs> How about you, Lynn? <laughs> I want people to get the true diagnosis, face the yeah. truth, and take action as much as they can on an individual level, not leave it to others, not... Some of my friends, colleagues, have said, oh, you're still busy with that climate march. Um, as though it's, it's sort of a little hobby of mine. Um, I try not to flog it too much because I'll have no friends in the end. But the reality is that we aren't taking responsibility, individual responsibility, not in the sense that it's all our fault, but we're now responsible to do what we can. That's what we're responsible for. Yes, well, our children and our grandchildren will ask us one day, what did you do in the great struggle against climate change? Mm. And we want to be able to say, well, we did something and we, um, yes. we stopped it. I yes. don't think that's good enough. I don't care about what they say. Oh, you know, I really don't care about that. That's sort of what did you do in the war, Daddy, that idea. It's so much bigger than that, Colin, I think. I don't really agree with that. Well, but it, it may be that even the, even the top end of town will, may come to understand that their heirs and descendants won't mm. have a place in a hotter world either. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, as a woman and a mother and a grandmother, it has a lot of... Um, it motivates me greatly when I feel despair and like giving up because I look at my grandchildren who trust me. I look at my grandchildren who I hope will have a good life. I look at my children and hope they'll get to live to be 68 like me and, you know, b be living in a thriving world. I feel immense horror and sadness about their future and I think we need to that's the way we conceptualise the future that's the way we conceptualise um, caring about the future and it's our you know on a selfish level it's always been our feeling of contributing to the future making our lives have a point to them not just as consumers and people who are left behind garbage and pollution. Okay, well, I'm getting the sign off now. Thank you very much. That's been a marvellous discussion, I think. I hope the listeners, you, you've enjoyed it. Just to tell you again, uh, the Climate March starts at 5.30 next Friday, the 27th of November. You can meet at the State Library in Swanson Street and bring your friends. If you can hook up with your union or your faith group, please check out their websites because they'll be perhaps carrying banners or wearing special colours. I know the faith group are, you know, wearing all purple. Um, if you need any more details, look it up on the internet on the peoplesclimate.org.au slash Melbourne. That's for the Melbourne people. Uh, for, for the uh, Australia-wide audience, there are marches in other cities. You just need to look up um, peoplesclimate.org.au. And we are joining with people worldwide to do this. And I thank our guests, David Spratt, Lynn Bender, and uh, Dr. Colin Long, for giving us their hour of passion and telling us all about it so that uh, you will come along to the rally at least. But don't just come to the rally. Come prepared to activate yourself for the long haul because I think it's more than our children and our grandchildren I think it's really future species and the future of everything so please come along thanks today to the radio team um, myself Vivian Langford um, my colleague Jane on the panel Teddy Jody, Roger Miwa and Glenn and join us next week Monday at 5.30 maybe we'll have some guests from Paris now stay tuned for Save Albert Park <laughs> 